All right. Today is uh, May 21st. Mr. Mike Wardeen over here on the call this morning. How you doing, Mike? Good morning, Adam. I'm doing great. And I'm in the Carney Studios today. What is what is this? Episode 13? This is ep- episode 13. Lucky 13 today. Lucky 13, May 21st. I don't know. What, what would be something good to talk about? Uh, you know, crops are emerging. We've got little seedlings out there. A lot of stuff going on in the field. And be really good to talk about how stands came up, what affected them, and what to look forward to. All right. So this is Kicking Dirt with Mike and Adam. And I think those are all great topics, Mike. I'm, I am extremely excited today to, uh, to be on this call because we actually have a gentleman on the, on the phone with us that I highly respect for multiple reasons. Um, I met this gentleman, oh man, it would have been 2000, late in 2005. So that's going on almost 16 years now. There's a lot of things that I have learned from this guy, not just about agronomy and what's happening in the fields, but uh, I've always admired his, uh, his ability to adapt as the years have gone on, learn new things himself. Just without any other introduction, we have Mr. Orvin Bontrager on the phone. He is a, a Servitech agronomist. And Orvin, how are you doing this morning? Very good, Adam. Good morning. Yeah, why don't you tell everybody out there a little, just a little bit about yourself? How long have you been in this game? You know, what, what are you doing currently? Share your story. Sure. Well, I grew up in Kansas on a small farm. I went to Kansas State as an undergraduate, went to Texas A&M for a graduate degree. I read about this company called Servitech. It was just starting up in the mid-70s and uh, had a couple friends that joined. And um, actually, when I was in college, crop consulting was not even talked about. I mean, that was that was just something that wasn't even on the radar. So anyway, I visited with them about it, and I came Back to uh, central Kansas. I started Sterling, Kansas with Servitech in 19, fall of 1977. Uh, Servitech was looking to move people to Nebraska in 1983, fall of 1983. So we moved up here, just picked up and moved and been here in Aurora area ever since. So kind of built up this area. I uh, did some training, was uh, education director for about 20 some, 25 years with Servitech. And now lately I've been scaling back somewhat, but still checking 9,000 acres or so with a, with a good clientele. You know, you got 43 years of, of uh, crop consulting in, and I've been alive for 41 of those. Actually, I am on a third generation of a couple growers here. That's kind of neat when you start working with third generation. Absolutely. Yeah. I could imagine, Orvin, when you first started consulting in Kansas and even early in Nebraska, how things have changed since you've moved 43 years into the future. <laughs> I mean, back then it was probably all conventional till. It was probably a lot of corn on corn to what it well, is Well, absolutely. Today. I mean, um, uh, a lot of six-row equipment when we started. Controlling corn borer, first and second generation corn borer, was our basically our bread and butter for many years. I mean, good, doing a good job. That's what really got crop consulting started in the high plains, in my opinion. When I moved to Nebraska, shatter cane was our number one wheat problem. That's <laughs> the, what Ridge bring back got those, going. Bring back those days, please, Orvin. <laughs> Who would have thought that you couldn't control pigweed, water hemp, you know, and um, shatter cane, velvet leaf, shatter cane particularly was our worst weed for for quite a while here until Beacon came along. If you remember that to extend, those were miracle products, Uh, Accent. I mean, that really was something there for a while where we were able to control emerge shatter cane. So uh, 
things have changed. Being one of the first of, of what I would consider true crop consultants, you know, 43 years ago, corn and, and crops have been grown obviously way before that. But what created that industry? Was it just the loss of, of yield due to corn borer in general? Or what do you think created the industry to put agronomists out there helping growers grow better crops? Well, in uh, Kansas, anyway, in the areas we started up in, uh, irrigation was fairly new. Uh, in central Kansas, where I was at, well, I grew up on a little farm by Halstead, and I remember the first center pivot, uh, water, the old water drive center pivot going in a couple miles from where I lived and driving by there, kind of amazed how this thing walks around the field. And that would have been probably in the late 60s. So a lot of irrigation was fairly new in the areas where we started up. I know southwest Kansas had had irrigation going earlier than that. But um, so some of the, you know, as the dryland farmers bought pivots, it was new technology, how to, how to irrigate. Um, and a lot of that was unknown as to how they should operate. Sometimes the feeling was, you know, as soon as the crop comes out of the ground, you just turn the pivot on and keep it going. Uh, of course, there was a lot of gravity fields back then where a lot of water was sent down the ditches with too much water early, probably. And so there was a lot of unknowns on a lot of the growers on how to irrigate properly. Corn borer, like I say, was a was a major one. I can remember uh, uh, distinctly, I think, uh, Fjordan got labeled in uh, 1978 for corn borer control. And that was a, a liquid Fjordan. That was a game changer for, for corn borer control. <laughs> Up until then, it was kind of a hit and miss with some products. So we had products come along that were able to control the insects better and being able to time it properly. 1986 was a huge corn borer year. And if you don't remember this, Adam, because uh, you're still in diapers probably, but uh, <laughs> corn was rock bottom prices. Nobody wanted to spend any money. Just terrible prices. The farm economy was in the tank. I mean, it, the mid 80s was just terrible. I talked, we had, it was, it was a no brainer to find corn borer eggs in, in 1986 in this area, just they were everywhere. Most people didn't treat. I talked most of my guys in treating and it was just, just a huge difference in the fall uh, uh, where we treated and then treated. And that from then on, it was kind of, we were kind of off and running on being able to show, show farmers and clients that we were able to control them. And even though we had very low commodity prices that it still was a big payoff for them. Some of those timing things came along that uh, showed the advantage of uh, being a consultant. You know, farmers are, are just hit with a lot of different philosophies and products and they value, I believe, an independent assessment of what they should be using and how much they should be using. And so um, I've always told anybody that's ever worked with me, the, the farmer client only, they do business with who they trust. If you are a person that sells unconventional products and they trust you, they're probably going to do business with you. That trust factor is a very, very valuable thing to gain with your clients. And it doesn't come overnight. It takes many years to do that. But you can lose it really quick too if you don't uh, stay on top of it. Yeah, that's there again. You know, so, again, I kind of equated like coaching. Uh, we remember what the football team did last year as far as the coaches, if they're successful or not. Many times we don't remember what we did five years ago. So <laughs> we're kind of uh, move the bar every year to where we. Uh, and not in my opinion, you're 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 trying to prove your worth and to uh, and, and they remember that uh, if you're successful and, and it's a it's a ever ever moving target of uh, uh, you know keeping that trust there but you can lose it real quick if you if you don't watch it yeah yep as you, as you were as you were talking through that it was really hitting me the trust factor that you talk about is built with 
knowledge. You, you have to be knowledgeable of your situation, of what you're doing. And then the other part of that was the technology. Okay. So you, you were talking about how consulting was kind of starting because at the same time, there was farmers adapting new technology into their operations that they were unsure of. They didn't know how it quite worked. They were looking for more information to be more mm-hmm. successful. And really, in, in my mind, that's what it still is today, too. As, yep. as yep. agriculture changes, new technology is invented. It's about a grower partnering with somebody that they trust because they're knowledgeable on what's going to make them successful, but can also help them adapt into that new technology. You know, the way that you put that just made me think, again, everything that we're going through in the farm economy that we've seen the last couple years and maybe the 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 way that things had looked but then now all of a sudden this year it seems like there's a lot of new technologies or new products or new things that guys want to reintroduce this year because the economy is a lot better and then it's like okay who who do i trust on what this actually is going to do for me or if i'm just going to spend a bunch of money well it's tempting now obviously with the commodity prices to you know throw the kitchen sink at it and do everything. And that's not necessarily what we want to do. You know, we're forever weighing what works and what doesn't work. I, I honestly, over the years have treated my, the acres I look at and the growers, I, as if they were my own, I I really, I've been fairly probably more conservative than some people have been as far as using, you know, some rates of fertilizer and products. I try to treat them like they're my own. And uh, if they're not going to pay, if things, if something's not going to pay off economically, I tend not to do that or try not to do it. But it, it's a, it's an ever uh, changing environment. Uh, you know, as you know, some years, some products work very well. Some years, maybe they don't work so well. But, and that's just things that we have to, to weigh as we make those recommendations. This, this is one thing with agriculture. It's a very emotional business. Like you just said, we treat these fields like they're our own. I know for me, I lay at bed in, in at night thinking about, you know, what I saw for that day or how I could help somebody different the next day, or, man, I need to revisit the situation I was in. And, and, and it's very emotional. And when things sometimes don't work out, you know, you feel a lot of that inside you. Now, 43 years of doing this, how do you keep emotion out of making solid recommendations? Talk to my wife about, um, you know, I, she knows about as much what's going on with my clients as I do because I share with her and uh, I get very, uh, you know, if I missed a call somewhere, uh, it really bothers me. You don't know how many times, Adam, when I go into a field or drive up to a field, I'm holding my breath going, okay, did I, did I make the right decision here or not? Hope the right decisions were made. That's exactly um, right. The chemical I've recommended, did it ding the crop or did it uh, control? It's just, um, you just, like I say, face your fears and walk in and see what you did, see what the results were. And uh, so it's very hard not to to, uh, get emotional about it. To be on the safe side, I try to treat accordingly to make where it's going to pay off. You know, those are those risks that you you have to weigh when you're you're, um, working with your clients. Now, some clients... You know, they're more likely, as you know, the the old social style training that we had over the years, Adam, some clients are more avert to being very cautious and only have to uh, have the top yield. Some are very emotional, enthusiastic, kind of like you are, Adam, and have to have, 
have uh, some of the best yields. And so you try to treat those accordingly. You know, you get to know your client that way. Uh, right. You're going to spend a little more. You're going to take a little more risk on, sh- on really trying to um, get that best yield with some clients and some clients, some you're not. So you just, that's where it comes in over years of getting to know who you're working with. But so there's a lot of emotion in it. I, I, it's hard that it's hard to take that out of it. Well, um, and that's a, that's one thing I wanted to get back to a little bit is that emotion. Honestly, I've made some decisions over the years. Like you said, you hold your breath and you're, you're yeah. hoping that they're going to work. Yeah. Uh, but you, the emotion in it is that gut feeling too, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's so much information out there that you can read about all of these decisions. And, you know, this is part of what this podcast is about is actually just giving your kind of real life experiences because anymore you can find information. And I mean, sure. hell, there's got to be a sheet out there somewhere that tells you exactly how to grow corn. And if you read that, uh, you know, you could probably do pretty good, but mm-hmm. as agronomists and consultants, it really comes down to some of that final gut decision right. and emotion of, Hey, we're going to do it or we're not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, the, the reason there's emotion there is because you have a passion for your career and your profession. And, and that is just great. I mean, you're just not going to a factory and sitting at a machine all day, right. mindlessly doing something. You're actually working with living products and, and, passionate about it and you learn each year how to do things differently and better and pass that information on and see it succeed so it is a, a very rewarding business too when it comes to that well and kind Absolutely. of going into this time of year, i mean the, the decisions we make this time of year are obviously uh good or bad you you live with them the rest of the year i mean uh, uh, if you didn't water at the right time to get the corn up or you didn't spray the weeds at the right time you didn't plant uh, appropriately, uh, accordingly, you have a bad stand. Unfortunately, you got to live with that the rest of the year. And, and that's not a very comfortable when you're having to check those fields on a weekly basis. And you made some decisions earlier on that you have to live with. Some of those ones made in August or so you don't have to live with so long, but these, these here you got to live with for the rest of the summer. <laughs> you know, that's a great segue, Orvin, because I, I kind of wanted to, before we get even into emergence, you know, do you have some, what went well with your cover crop terminations? And, uh, and how it affected the fields when it didn't go well? Just hindsight as far as what you've seen this year or the previous year. I know exactly where Mike's going with this question, Orvin, because he's got some stuff that didn't get killed <laughs> off and he's looking at it going, oh man, how yeah, bad I is this going to be? Yeah, I listened, to your cover, or I listened to your podcast here a couple of weeks ago about that. I do check about 15, 1800 acres of seed corn and we use quite a bit of cover crops on them, following them or, or putting them on uh, during the, the, when the males chopped out and I think cover crops for e- erosion control are very important, particularly where you're in a seed corn, soybean rotation, because we just don't have a lot of residue out there and having a cover crop in to help that soil erosion, especially on these silt loam soils we have here in uh, Hamilton County is very important. On some of the conventional more corn soybean rotations, as you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to get a cover crop really working very well for you because you got you just don't have the time frame in there to get it going but we hit uh, most of our cover crops that i had on seed corn that by the way as i put a picture on twitter yesterday i think uh, as you know the turnips and canolas and the radishes overwintered more than they should have this year because even though we had very cold weather we had a lot of snowfall i mean we had 12 14 16 inches of snow out there when we had that very cold weather and, and we normally don't have those overwinter like we did this year and we had to terminate those 
those. We did most of that over actually over that Easter weekend when it was really warm. And I think it's important to go ahead and get them taken care of a couple of weeks ahead of planting for a number of reasons. Uh, the allelopathic thing is probably there, but just to do a better job of planting. And I think when that little those little corn and bean plants coming up, in my opinion, and I think research will show this too, if you've got a lot of sunlight blocking it from a cover crop, I think you're going to hurt it in the long run. And another one here is very valuable is, is, is saving that soil moisture. I have noticed the guys that are strip-tilled have helped that a lot. By If you strip-till it, at least you have that strip-till area that uh, where you've killed it out and it still plants pretty good. But uh, that, that rye can take a lot of moisture out. Now, we've had some timely rains here recently to kind of bail that out, but uh, you, you don't always have that. The value of the uh, cover crop, keep the wind from blowing the soil away, you know, stop right. some erosion and everything like that. And, you know, sometimes you, you think, I, I want it, that crop to stay out there and, and alive to do that. But in reality, you know, if, if you spray it down and it turns brown and it's a mat of residue, it's still there. It's just, right. you've terminated at a timely basis. You hit that warm temperature, you said at April or whatever, and, and, uh, and got it terminated in time. And, and it's still there doing its job. It just happens to be brown and dead and not quite as tall and not using moisture um, as opposed yep. to letting it go. And roots are still on the ground holding the soil. Yeah, I really liked a couple of comments that you made in there. One, you listened to our podcast. So that's one. <laughs> and that's really... I actually agreed with you there. <laughs> Man, that's great. Um, and and then two, you know, you were talking a little bit more about canola and uh, turnips and radishes, you know, and that's something that we did talk about in that podcast was, you know, in your part of the world, those are, you know, that's really common as part of your cover crop. And our part of the world, as you head further west, I mean, when guys are talking about cover crop, it's mainly rye or wheat. And uh, right. we just haven't really adapted into that because, again, we don't have near as much seed corn uh, production or early season crops that come out. Now, silage is something that we're a little bit higher in than what you guys are as you move east. So I think guys that are doing silage should look into those radish turnip mixes. But for that late cover that we usually get, it's mainly rye. And mm -hmm. then the other factors that you brought in, either that rye needs terminated a couple of weeks before you plant corn, best scenario, or if you're going to plant green, strip till it and plant corn. Right. Or if you're planting green, it should just be soybeans. I absolutely am not a fan at all of planting corn just into a heavy rye or wheat cover and then coming back later and killing it. It's, it hasn't been successful consistently as if you strip tilled it or if you're planting beans into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you saw this information too. Uh, this gentleman from Indiana, I think he, they had to actually add another 50 to 60 pounds of nitrogen to the corn crop to maintain the yields. If you let the, if you let that rye grow up and, and didn't terminate it because it did not all release all that nitrogen back during the growing season. So those are some yeah. economic things you need to talk about or think about too. That's a great point of, Hey, if you got that far into the season, really you're going to need to watch your nitrogen Right. Uh, throughout the year. Awesome. Those are great points. Mike, you want to bring us back to uh, <laughs> yeah. emergence now? We keep going Let's down about trails. <laughs> I love Let's this. Talk, I, I love it. In my area that I cover, basically Grand Island to the Wyoming border, corn is, we're all over the board as far as uh, being a VE stage to V2, V3. You've been doing some plant counts out there, Orvin. Where where you've been 
what you've been seeing as far as populations they pretty much spot on or we really didn't get going on corn until I think the 20, I was looking here, the 21st, the 22nd was maybe the first corn I had planted here. We actually had, I had more soybeans. This is the first year that I've had probably more. Well, I know it is. This is the first year I had more soybeans planted early than I did corn. And uh, I had actually fair, that real cold week of the 19th. And uh, this is the first year we've really done that. And uh, I would they say were listening been, to listening to our podcast again, weren't they? Well, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> or they were listening to me. I'm not sure. But, They'll uh, see if we're right this fall. <laughs> I dropped a lot of 32 to 34 thousands, and I'm getting anywhere from 30 to 32. I mean, it, it's not. It's decent stands. I wouldn't say they're great, but they're they're decent on corn. Uh, we did water some of the fields to alleviate a crust. Actually, this week I've been pretty pleased with a lot of the early planted. That 21st to the 25th, sixth planting. I've been pretty pleased with the stands on the corn. The soybeans I've kept them in that around that 140,000 drop. I haven't gone too much over that, and I've got a lot of them now. I'm really pleased with a hundred thousand or better anymore on soybeans. I don't think, you, in my opinion, you don't need them very thick. And I'm ending up with a lot of 120, 30,000 stands on the soybeans this this, uh, this week. So uh, they've actually come. They're looking better this week than I thought they they were going to look a week ago. Uh, a lot of the, those early planted soybeans are in the unifoliate stage. They'll be putting a first trifoliate on next week. The number of fields that I have are by far the most I've ever had at this stage in this this time of year. I'm a big proponent of going early pre-plant with a residual, and I did that on almost 100% of the fields on soybeans. And then actually here in the last 10 days, we've gone back in with another layer of a residual. My goal is to not see any water hemp come up because around here, if they come up, there's no guarantee you're going to kill them or Palmer. Most of my soybean fields actually have two residuals on now, two different residuals, two different passes. That is, that is the key though, isn't it, Orvin? Spraying, spraying dirt, dirt instead of weeds, you know, get keeping ahead of them with residuals. Now, hold on, well, hold on, making Mike. Sure is... you get it, making sure you get it activated too. As you know, some of these pro sulfuron product that takes a fair amount of water to get them working and you just don't want to spray them and leave them lay there either. So you want to get some water on if it doesn't rain. Yeah. You know, Mike, you were saying spraying dirt. You know, this, this is the part where we have to be a little bit more professional. You know, you and I are just kicking dirt, but really it's soil. Orvin it's soil. <laughs> wants to correct us on that. You're spraying. Or spraying dirt. a lot of residue. Sometimes it's a lot of residue you're spraying too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, it, going back to corn emergence, we have a lot of strip till. What, I, what I've been seeing, I've been seeing populations very similar to yours, you know, 20, or if it was planted at 34, we're getting a lot of 30, 31,000 populations. If there are delays, there's probably an issue with residue that blew over the top where it's just sitting there underneath a corn stalk or leaf. And it was just cool enough to delay that plant. And it's just not out yet. It's there. It's just not out yet. And do you think there's much yield loss, you know, just with that late comer there? I don't think there is as much as what is laid out sometimes uh i mean you, you always hear those late emergers are just the weed and i guess i don't believe that i see those late emergers still putting putting an ear on it may not be a big ear but it's putting an ear on i still got a lot of ridge tail here sometimes the corn on corn planting conditions aren't the greatest there depending on how you got it row stock and so forth watch your water situation and get get some water on if you don't have it planted correctly or right i do have a little bit of no-till true no-till corn on corn and that's a real challenge it's hard to get those to yield up there with where we've got it on ridges or strips uh i mean it's a and i think adam's actually done some i've always followed some of his uh, summaries at the end of the year where the true no-till corn on corn 
invariably isn't quite up there with the yield that either the strip till or the ridge till is and I, or conventional. Some of those latent ones there just don't just don't probably put as big an ear on. I do think, I mean, it's not a total weed, but they do lack on ear size. It's very important in my, to be, mon- I, I double checked and really monitor these fields before they ever come up on crusting. And I know a lot of times guys don't run a pivot. They're busy planting. They're trying to finish up planting. They got other things to do. And, but I'm a big proponent of if you got much of a crust to get a little water on it, it really makes that corn come up more even, in my opinion, that, that really helps you out in the end uh, versus letting those late ones kind of struggle along and eventually come up. But they're a week or two behind coming out of the ground couldn't agree more i mean that's one thing you can't redo that you know like you said on some of those decisions that you you make early on you're going to live with that the entire year um well that's what i've alluded to the i mean like i say that nobody wants i mean it's easy enough to go out there and punch a button to get the thing going but invariably they're getting stuck and everything too it seems like but (laughs) yeah uh, that's what i've that's what i've tried to pass on is i tell you know this is it may be a marginal situation, but $100 an acre for seed, you might as well spend a little bit, get the crop out of the ground. I'm right there with you because, uh, you know, not only have you spent the money on the seed, you spent the time in the tractor, you spent all winter setting up mm-hmm. a plan, you know, and a lot of these plans are for season long plan. And all of that can go to the wayside mm-hmm. if you're if you're not going out there to establish a good stand. And many times you've got, what, $30 worth of herbicide laying out there. If you don't get it activated, it's not going to do you much good. So Absolutely. So when uh, we're talking. Yeah, it's amazing me how many, how many dollars we got laying out there and then just watch a crust, uh, you know, hurt your stand is, is something that. Uh, it's emotionally frustrating. Isn't it's it? emotionally frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. So we were talking about emergence. We were talking about the importance of it and, and some things that we can do. You know, Mike said a lot of his corns anywhere from maybe still sitting in the bag to V2 to V3. And, and that's right where I'm at too. And you alluded to on the beans that you already have a second residual down. Where are we at on the corn? Because V2 to V3 is a really critical stage in corn. You're talking about what's happening in the plant. Transferring from seed energy to soil energy, V2 all the way up to maybe V6 extremely critical time to be weed free, limit competition, capture sunlight. What are you seeing are the next steps in your cornfields now? I'm a hundred percent either upfront, early pre-plant or pre-emerge herbicide application. So those fields are weed free now. If you're planting into, uh, you know, just going out and planting and letting your winter annuals go and then then coming back after the corn's coming up with a product, I, I think you're hurting yourself. Uh, a number of ways, but uh, now at the V2, V3, if you've uh, split applied, you know, you're going to come up, you'll be coming up here in another 10 to 12 days or, or, or you know, where you're going to want to get your second application on before we get too late on your second, on your second treatment. If you're in a, a strip till or no till where you split applied half of your product up front, you're going to want to get the rest of it on here probably by the end of May anyway you know, before the corn gets away from you. Uh, it all adds up in the end on yield. Uh, a lot t- a lot is taking place in that little plant right now that you don't realize uh, that'll uh, affect the ear size later on. Right now, corn, what we've been talking about, really watch those pivots and, and get the stand established. So we've got some guys that, again, going back to Mike's point, you know, corn's not quite out of the ground yet. That's something that those guys still need to monitor is, hey, we may need to run the pivots. 
uh, water where we can. Let's get the stand established. For those fields that are further along, uh, we, we need to really watch the weed control. And right now, guys should be thinking about what is my program going to be? Because if you start thinking about that in two weeks from now, you're going to be behind the eight ball. And so I want guys to think about right now is the time to really know what we're going to do because that V3 to V4 up to V5 is the time frame I really like to target still. Once we get past that, we are getting to the point that some of the chemistries that we want to use aren't quite as safe. We have more crop response situations. We're letting the weeds get too tall to where control is bad. And then the other part of that on corn, we need to watch that early nutrient uptake, the root growth, and getting to make sure that we're not losing potential because of weather this year. If we were getting the sunlight and we were getting good root growth, I'm not as concerned about it. But if what Mike says comes true, and we've got two weeks here of pretty cloudy weather, it is a little bit more concerning to me on making sure that we've got everything that that plant's going to need with that limited root growth. Does that sum it up pretty decent, Orvin? I think so. You talked about you've got more soybeans up now in this particular stage than you've than you've ever had. So we're talking about unifoliate stage. In so, general, those soybean stands are pretty good, though, aren't they, Orvin? As far as what the guy planted, what he got up. You know, like like I say, this week it's better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I dropped a lot of one hundred and forty thousand a week ago. I was in that hundred thousand range or so. There were still a few more coming this this week. I've got a lot of one hundred twenty thirty thousand stands now with one hundred forty thousand drops. So I'm I'm really tickled with that. I, I, I that's that's a, in my opinion that's a plenty of beans. I over the years I've research has shown this too. The thinner beans will yield as good or better. But they, in my opinion, they stand so much better. If I get them too thick, they, they tend to fall over in August. And uh, those thinner beans sure stand a lot better and harvest a lot better and yield a lot better from what I've seen. So uh, the only the yeah. downside of it is, is they don't canopy quite as fast. And uh, that's where your residuals really come in is if you got thinner beans or you've got issues with that got crusted or, or they didn't come up as well and you have thinner beans, uh, they just don't canopy quite as fast to, uh, you know, to shade out the, the, especially the water hemp later on. We're kind of working on soybean uh, structure and in my favorite style of bean is a shorter bean that'll stand well, yet it has real wide canopy. Uh, mm -hmm. That works great for getting it to close up the rows quickly. Uh, white mold is another issue though. You kind of want a little air going between there. So right. we still have a few narrow canopy ones for really high, high white mold areas, but uh I just love the fact, though, that you mentioned on a, a few different strategies there, Orvin, you know, because lodge beans in August is is a detriment big time to yep. yield, you know, 10 to 15 percent yield loss if you've got flat beans in August. But the early advantage of that a lot of times is you are getting a quicker canopy, maybe better mm -hmm. weed control. If you're going thinner stands, you really have to watch your your residual weed control, you know, that could be a yield detriment up front. So you have to change some of your strategies of what you're doing. If you're going thinner in 30 inch rows, really watch your early weed control. If you're going that 180 plus thousand in 15s, maybe the early weed can, it's still very important, but it may be not be as important as watching your watering and your potential for late lodging, because that could be your yield loss. Right. So it's not a one size fits all, especially when it comes to beans. The whole resistant water hemp uh, palmer is just throwing a whole different management, especially on my seed corn rotated fields. It's just, boy, those are those fields are tough. Uh, where you got seed corn and rotated the beans and then back to seed corn, those are tough situations. The dicambas are fine, but uh, you kind of roll them up and stun them back for a while, and then here they come again. So it, 
you can't count on Doug Campbell controlling them anymore. Yeah, I don't think we can count on any type of single mode of action right. to control those weeds, whether it's, uh, you know, 2,4-D, whether it's uh, right. HPPD, whether it's uh, dicamba in general, if we're if we're really counting on one of those to be your main piece, rethink your strategy. Uh, you're so going to is... have to spend some money to do it. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know, it was kind of interesting when you said, Orvin, earlier there, you're getting your clients to think about laying residuals on soybeans with that early soybean planting, you know, some guys are typically by the calendar and they're looking at their beans and they planted their beans after corn. Well, this is when I put on my second layer of residuals, but you're thinking about it now because they planted those beans weeks ago and mm-hmm. uh, those first things are running out. Well, I'm trying to go about every month anymore. I mean, if I got my residuals on the first, second week of April, I'm trying to get another residual on about the second week of May. And then another one on in June. You can take your chances and stretch that longer, depending on what product you have and what, uh, how much rainfall you have and so forth. But uh, I've been really happy with my residuals. I just, the fields that we got residuals on in April, end of April planting beans, and then another residual that was put on here in the last 10 days. And we had a nice rain on it here the other day. I can't hardly find it. I just can't find anything out there so far. It it looks really, looks really well. So um, I want to stop you there real quick. This is something I struggle with all the time. And, and again, it's knowing your clientele, it's knowing who you're talking to, but it, this is also reality. And there's a lot of people out there that are going to shake their head at you right now. When you said you're going to have three herbicide passes on all with residual before the end of June. And I've right. got a lot of guys that will fight me. And there's a lot of guys, honestly, that don't even have much residual on their beans right now let alone having a second application on. I understand, I hear about it. Yeah, and in, <laughs> and in your experience, it probably wasn't too long ago that you were in that same camp, though. Uh, that, you know, historically, that's how we've done beans. Maybe one pre-emerge or putting that residual on right after planting as your first kind of shot. Well, even with the Roundup, I, Adam, I'll tell you, in the 90s, when the Roundup beans came on, here, I always used a residual early. And a lot of times we went out early pre-plant because we had mare's tail and so forth to burn down. And we always put a residual on. We never did rely totally on Roundup on our Roundup crops that I had. And uh, we still got, you know, we still got resistant issues. But uh, I've trained my clients, I guess, for the last whatever, 25 years that we need residuals on even the Roundup crops. And uh, we've never relied just totally on Roundup for wheat control from day one. So even in $7 beans, you saw an agronomic yield standpoint and a return on investment in advantage of having multiple layers of residual. Correct. Yes. I just can't see how you're going to, in the long term, you're going to survive on your resistant problems by just letting those weeds come up and expect the herbicide to control them uh, uh, on post-emerge. You're just, and I think here again, I think research has shown this. You've got to keep them from coming up to begin with. And uh, if you let them get up and get going and then you curl them up with a, either a, a list product or a dicamba product, or you don't get them all burned down with a Liberty product, you're you're living with a weed that's still competing out there. It may not look so bad from the road, but it's, it's competing and uh, putting on seed for next year. Trick question. And, I got one for you. Trick question. What's the easiest weed to control? The one you don't see. Is that right? Or Absolutely. That? The, <laughs> one that never, the one that never comes up. <laughs> the one that never comes up. And, and that, that comes back to the point of what you're, what you're talking about. It's don't let them come up. A lot of our resistance 
you know, quote resistance now, because we do have it. But also yeah. with that is the fact that everybody's worried about late flushes of weeds, right? And and mm-hmm. everybody wants, they're like, well, if we spray later, we can no. keep that late flush. And my advice to them is you spray earlier because the majority of that late flush really isn't late germinating and emerging. It's a lot of what we missed with the post application the very first time that right. we didn't fully get killed. Right. And you, and here again, you got to look at your, the risk factor. Um, I mean, you could lay, I mean, we laid on a lot of second residuals here in the last uh, 10 days, seven to 10 days. Now we got a nice rain on it, but it could have, you know, it could be where you didn't need, won't get a rain for another two weeks or something on it. So if you wait till the last minute and put your residual on that doesn't rain for a couple of weeks, you got a lot of weeds busting through on you. I would rather be on the front edge than on the back, back side of it. Orvin, the one thing that I really liked about, I'm seeing you on the screen here, just so the one thing that really stood out to me is as you're having this conversation, you are looking at a calendar too. Yeah. And that, just I like see what, you going I keep there. keep going back to my field reports here to see <laughs> all that. But the reason, the reason I love that is just what Mike said. It's about awareness. It's about looking at the, at the calendar. It's looking about typically where things should be. And it's, and it's saying historically, I have this information. This will go all the way back to where we started this conversation. It's about our industry is about knowledge. Knowledge comes from experience. Experience comes from understanding it and doing it and showing up and being there. You can't get experience if you don't walk into a field. You can't get knowledge if you don't have experience. And and that's what I appreciate most about you in the 43 years that you've been doing this is creating that experience to help share with the rest of us to create knowledge. But you telling me will never replace me walking in it and then calling you. I'm sure you probably get tired. I still call you. Yeah. Good questions make me think about stuff. So, um, Hey, we're always, we're always learning here. I mean, I, after 43 years, sometimes I, th- I think I know less than when I started, but you know, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's the, every year is different. Episode 13, kicking dirt with Mike and Adam. Orvin, what, what do you want to leave your guys with? You got a final message? Right now, I'm pretty optimistic around here with what uh, we, unfortunately, we had a big, it was fairly localized, but we had a big rain here, four or five inches that flushed a lot of stuff. And I tell you what, when you, I don't care what tillage system, planting system you use, when that corn is not out of the ground yet and you get a four or five inch rain, it's, it's, it's hard to deal with. But uh, other than that, I think things right now look really good. I think the beans and the corn that I've been checking here in the northern part of the county look about as good as they ever have. We can stay away from a hailstorm and a, and a big rain. So I, I think we're off and running with a with good potential. Uh, we're going to be going out with post-treatments on corn here before long. The seed corn I'm looking at looks really good. It's coming up well. We're staying on top of the weeds really well so far. I just did some GDU calculations real quick for uh, Phelps County. And from April 1st till now, we're right at 400 GDUs. April 1st to now from 2020, we're at 408. So we're eight GDUs behind same time frame last year. But if I go and run that from planning date, the majority of our corn went in April 22nd or later. April 22nd, we're currently at 283 GDUs versus 2020, we're at 275 so from April 1, we're eight days behind. From April 22nd, we're eight days or GDUs ahead, hmm. um, which actually the cool thing about that is physically in the field, we're seeing that two to three leaf corn. If you want to monitor GDUs right now running off of GDU charts, it takes roughly 280 GDUs to be at V3. And that's really where we're at, that, that April 22nd, 23rd. 
283, we're running right into V3. Well, as you maybe know, I keep everything on my calendar and I go back and look. And, uh, um, we're, we're almost exactly where we were a year ago, according to my calendar on growth stage. Not, that's not going off of GDUs, but on growth stage, we're just about exactly where we were a year ago. Help predict when herbicides and stuff are going to go out. Um, throwing this out there, if we go under normal conditions, June 4th, we should be at V6 corn, 460 GDUs. And then uh, by June 14th, we'll be at V9. So herbicides really should be on before June 4th on any of this corn that was planted I, that I last agree. week of April. I agree. And that the window closes really fast. Especially yeah, you, you get two-inch rain in there somewhere. <laughs> two-inch rain or let the wind blow. We all yeah. know that wind's going to blow. Really appreciate your time today. Well, I hope um, it helps. It's interesting to talk about. It is. Yeah. And that's really what this is all about. Is It's about to just to talk things. Hopefully, guys are listening to this and it's sparking some conversations it's uh sparking some thought in their head again episode 13 kicking dirt with mike and adam uh orvin bontrager with servitech thank you so much you guys have a great day yep you too thank you orvin thank you good good to visit